0: This month, I've been in a series entitled, When God Dares. And um, the text is John chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. He was in the world. He was in the world. And the world was made by him, and knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. I glance over and see Steve Miller with us this morning. They have been tracking right along with us in the Wednesday Night Recharge. And last year has just been a great year for us. And the Wednesday night is growing. Jade did an incredible job. So did Perkins, others, Michael, even Andrews and different ones. Steve's running with that ball right now. I would love for you to be in the Wednesday Night Recharge. It's growing and good things are happening. If you're missing that, you don't know what you're missing. Because they're tracking right along with us in what I'm teaching on Sunday morning. But the scripture says that God came into his own. And they received him not. But and it's that word right there. But the conjunction. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. I see in this, as I mentioned earlier when I began this series an element of risk. He came knowing full well some would not accept him and would reject him. John, in the New Living Translation, it says this in the same passage, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people and even they rejected him, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Father, we ask that you would speak to us right now. Open your word to our understanding. Help us to grasp the incredible truths of the Bible. Lord, I thank you so much for the light they've given me in my life and continue to give. The strength that I find in your word and its truths. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. So our text speak of how the creator came into the very world he created What amazes me, as I've already mentioned, is that he knew full well in advance what would happen, yet he came anyway. This is completely contradictory to what most of us do when it comes to situations of opening our heart or giving. Most of us avoid situations where there is any risk of rejection at all. Or, if there is only a small element of risk of rejection we might go there. But if the element of rejection, the risk is very high, we avoid it. None of us like to be rejected. Rejection is one of the most painful, harmful, hurtful things that can happen. Nobody likes to be made fun of, to be bullied. Of recent, we've been aware that there are a number of young people who have tragically taken their own lives because they were experiencing bullying in school. The Christmas season, of course, reminds us of The Grinch who stole Christmas too, right? And that's one of my favorite movies, by the way. (laughs) Forgive me if that offends you. And you think I'm immature for loving a child's movie. But Jim Carrey, I think, that was the best role that he ever filled in his entire career. And when that little boy is there hiding himself because they made fun of him because that little Grinch is growing whiskers at this young age and he cut himself trying to shave and, and when they, they finally remove, you remember he's got things over his head and then he puts his foot up, and they, if you've seen the movie, and the whole class erupts into laughter and he is, he is humiliated. That was the beginning of the guy whose heart was two sizes too small. It shrunk that day because when people make fun of you and they ridicule you or when people reject you, you close the door. Amen. In this series, we've talked about when God dared to be less when he came to earth. We've talked about when God came to love. Today, I want to talk about when God dared to give. Love is an interesting thing. It does make you want to give. The world has all kinds of ideas about love, doesn't it? It's usually defined as some irresistible emotional attraction, a chemistry that sparks and I can't help myself because I fell in love. I love word pictures. I really enjoy them a lot because they're so descriptive. And to me, falling in love is one of the most hilarious because you get the idea of the guys walking along, <laughs> oh, fail in love, overwhelmed and unable to do anything about it. Amen. Problem with that is, I'm not gonna ask you how many of you love your companion this morning because I don't want anybody next to you to slap you. Because all of that chemistry and emotional stuff, how many of you have lived long enough to realize that kind of fades after a while? And love is as much a decision and more so, actually, than it is an emotional attraction. Love is a covenant. I committed myself to my wife, and she committed herself to me. We entered into a covenant. Well, the world looks at love a lot differently these days. One of my favorite cartoon strips is Calvin and Hobbes. Anybody familiar with this one? Calvin is this precocious little six-year-old kid with this extraordinarily vivid imagination, vivid imagination, very gifted. His arc rival is Susie, the little girl that lives down the street. And Calvin, the six-year-old kid, this precocious kid, has a pet tiger, stuffed tiger, called Hobbs, that in his vivid imagination comes to life. And so we have this cartoon here, and Susie is saying, Hey, Calvin, are we near a slaughterhouse, or did you forget your deodorant? And Calvin screams back, drop dead, Susie, you're so ugly. I hear your mom puts a bag on over your head before she kisses you goodnight. (laughs) And then Calvin says, it's shameless the way we flirt. (laughs) Don't you love that? And then he asks his pet tiger, what's it like to fall in love? And Hobbes, the pet tiger, the source of all wisdom, the stuffed tiger that comes to life, says, well, say the object of your affection walks by. And Calvin says, yeah. And Hobbes says, first your heart falls into your stomach and splashes your innards. All the moisture makes you sweat profusely. The condensation shorts the circuits to your brain and you get all woozy. And when your brain burns out altogether and your mouth disengages, you could babble like a cretin until she leaves. And Calvin said, that's love. And Hobbes said, medically speaking. (laughs) And Calvin said, heck, that happened to me once. I figured it was the cooties. (laughs) I want to tell you what love really is. Love is giving. Having just celebrated Christmas, if there's anything the Christmas story teaches us about God, God is a giver. Most of us are not aware of how extraordinarily generous God is in his giving. That's really the truth. Oh, we know about his riches that are abundant and limitless, but there aren't many of us who are fully aware of his liberality. We're familiar with his wealth. Psalms 24, 1 through 2, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The psalmist rightly declares that since God created everything, then everything does indeed belong to him. And through the years, philosophers have laughed about people who claimed great possessions only to ask after they were gone, what did you take with you? I love Tolstoy's story of all the land you can own. When in the days of the czars, they said, if you can... Walk around a property, Russia being vast and huge. All of the property you can walk around in one day will be yours. And this man, greedy and selfish, took out early in the morning instead of walking, ran and ran the whole day. And ran until his heart was pounding. And ran until he, he had perspired so heavily That the electrolytes were depleted and he still ran and ran and ran. And finally, as the sun was going down, he ends back up at his starting place and drops dead. And Tolstoy said, all the land that that man owned was the six feet that he was placed under. Amen. But God owns everything. God's generosity didn't begin at Christmas, but Christmas certainly teaches us that God gives. The truth is he's been a giver from the very dawn of creation until now. In fact, God is such a giver that he gives with extravagance that could even seem to be foolish and wasteful. He gave existence to all we see and worlds infinite in number that we have never seen. When insofar as the drama of redemption is concerned, think about it, all he really needed to do to create for... uh, his plans regarding mankind to succeed was one sun and one earth. That's all he needed to create. And we live on the earth and we're warmed by the sun and he would come and be our savior. But when God spoke creation and opened his mouth, it was more than just a sun and an earth that came out. Listen to this. In October 2016, an article in Science Magazine based on deep field images from the Hubble Space Telescope suggested there are about 2 trillion galaxies, listen to this phrase, in the observable universe. 2 trillion, or about 10 times more galaxies than previously believed by science. The average galaxy contains about 100 million stars. Stars. Our Milky Way, that Earth is a part of, the galaxy we belong in, actually contains about 100 billion or a thousand times more. And so when you say 100 million is the average size of a galaxy, that's really, according to science, a very low estimate. Amen. So if an average galaxy contains 100 million stars and there are 2 trillion of them, multiply 2 trillion by 100 million and you get a low estimate of 1 septillion. That's a one followed by 24 zeros. That's how many stars are in the observable universe. How many stars were created when God just opened his mouth and said, worlds, come into being and whoosh, It's almost like God had to put his hand back over his mouth because his word has such creative force that it created galaxies without number. As I said, these are just the ones we see in the observable universe in Hebrews 11 and 3 declares, By faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. All of this so that there could be a planet that God could bring into fulfillment his redemptive purposes. All of the others, just superfluous. Just extra. Because when he gives, he just... You say, is there life on other planets? (laughs) I don't know. I'm just kind of worried about the one we're living on right now, just to be honest with you. Amen. And on this one, he gave life to trillions of living creatures, great and small, that are of varieties too great to number. When he created fish, he didn't just create, say, a salmon. There are many different species. There's a the catfish that lives in the bayou and the largemouth mouth bass, and there's the mahi-mahi out in the ocean, and... Just species of fish that we can't even count. We don't even know the full number of yet. Or read just the other day that scientists on a submersible vessel discovered a number of new species in one of the deep water trenches and speculate there are many... We, they don't even know, they said, how many thousands and thousands more species of fish that remain to be found and, and categorized. It's just unbelievable. And God just said, fish appear. And when he did, he's so liberal and generous that like the worlds he created that were just too much to number. Now we have fish that are so numerous in species that they can't be numbered. And the same thing with birds. He didn't just create eagles. (laughs) He created a little sparrow and then the tiny hummingbird and the giant condor that lives in the Andes. And there's an infinite number of species that exist what he just spoke birds into existence and the same is true with animals and insects and and that's just what we can see what we can't see doesn't even begin what we can see rather doesn't even begin to compare with a microscopic creation that is so small we can't see them with the unaided eye things that exist at the microscopic level and so the one thing that we see about god is that his generosity didn't begin at christmas From the very dawn of creation, he has been lavishly just giving, giving, creating worlds, creating life. Every day he bestows upon us the breath we breathe, our lungs respire, our hearts contract, and blood is pumped through our circulatory system. And we all live because of his generosity. God is so generous. They tell us that in the act of reproduction, though only one single sperm is required to produce life, as many as 200 to 500 million sperm are released in the reproductive act. There's only one that's needed. And there is such overkill, such dramatic over-response that God almost seems wasteful in his creation. A woman only needs one egg to create a baby when it's fertilized, yet The average woman is born as a little girl with approximately 2 million eggs already in her ovaries. She can't even live long enough to use everything that God has equipped her with. And we think God is selfish. We think he's stingy because we grew up in a world with people with hearts that are two sizes too small. And they mirrored to us what we thought God was like. And we come to church, and and when we approach God, we're thinking that God has to be begged. God, please, I need a miracle. And God is saying, what are you begging me for? I open my mouth, and worlds come flooding out when I only needed one. The 730 service, Joy and Austin Griffin are faithful members here and have been for many years. And they sit right over here on the second row of seats. But in the last Holy Spirit encounter, they were sitting further back. The building was full. People up and down the stairs. And right in the middle of his sermon, Lloyd stopped. And you tell me, God is not real. And he said, Joy, where are you? It's her name, Joy Griffin. They're business people in our community. She is a a nurse, been a nurse for many years, highly regarded in the medical community. Lady sitting right over here, she might even be in this service. I don't know which one she attends. Her name is Joyce. And when Lloyd said, Joy, where are you? This lady over here began to really become emotional. And he said it again, Joy, where are you? And finally he said, Joy, stand up. And this lady was thinking he would say, Joyce, I'm not making this up. And she had had seizures from the time she was a young woman and was on medication And do you know that she claimed that thinking that he was saying, Joyce? And she went crazy and God healed her. And wait, I'm not done. But what he was really saying was joy. And joy was having a heart attack. And she told me later, Pastor, I am a nurse. I know what it was. I was having a heart attack. And I was just turning to Austin, which is her husband, to say, call 911. 911. And when he said joy, on the third time it got through to her, joy, stand up. And when she stood up, he said, you're healed. And she said, pastor, instantly, the heart attack stopped. Instantly, she said, and she said, I know what they are. I know what they are. She said, I was going into severe ventricular tachycardia. And not only that, she said, worse, I was having a heart attack. I was dying. And she told me two weeks later with tears streaming down her face. She said, Pastor, I learned the other night that God knows my name. Isn't that incredible? But what blows my mind, I want to show you how generous God is. When God spoke a miracle for her, somebody else stood up and thought it was for her and in faith she claimed it and she got the miracle because when god speaks he's he opens his mouth a flood of blessings come out all you gotta do is claim it oh hallelujah 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 200 to 5 million sperm, 500,000 sperm, 200 to 500 million sperm released in the Reproductive Act. And somebody said it like this. You all lined up at the starting gate. 200 to 500 million. Don't ever let anybody tell you you're a loser. Don't ever let anybody talk you down. You won, baby. Amen. God wanted you to be here. God is far from stingy. He is wastefully, recklessly, extravagant, always giving and generous. Many parables in the Gospels present God as an irrepressible giver. Even when the parable has other objectives for it being told and God's generosity is secondary to the theme of the parable, we will still see God described as giving to the point of extraordinary and lavish extravagance. In one parable... He's depicted as a farmer who went out and scattered seed everywhere, just seed everywhere, even on the rocks, even among the thorns, even where the birds would get it, knowing that most of it wouldn't take root, just throwing seed everywhere. In another, he's portrayed as a king so generous in giving that he forgave a debt of 10,000 talents. We kind of read that and say, hmm, that's pretty good. We have no idea what we just read. A talent weighed different amounts in different countries in biblical times. In Greece, a talent was 57 pounds. A Roman talent was 71 pounds. In Egypt, a talent was 60 pounds. A Babylonian talent was 67 pounds. Israel adopted the Babylonian talent, but later later revised it to what came to be called the heavy common talent. And by the time Jesus came, the heavy common talent was a talent being used throughout the Middle Eastern era in the New Testament times. And it was the talent referred to in this parable. And it wasn't a talent of lead either. When It was a talent of gold. And it weighed 130 pounds. And when you read the talents of the New Testament, that's what they are. 130 pounds at this morning's price of approximately 1200 Dollars per ounce of gold, one hundred and thirty pounds of gold would be worth two million seven hundred eight thousand one hundred and sixty dollars. Some of you would love for the electrical company to just forgive your electrical bill, but i 'm talking about a, a forgiving one talent is almost three million dollars, but ten thousand talents. You have to multiply ten thousand times two million seven hundred eight. Thousand one hundred and sixty dollars, and the the king. And this isn't even the, the 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 message of the story. It's not even the purpose. It's not even his generosity that's being discussed. He forgave a debt that was worth twenty seven billion eighty one million six hundred thousand dollars. Do you know anybody that that is in your circle that would be willing to forgive a debt like that? I don't. Most of us grew up in a world where that's, <laughs> no, no, you're going to pay me or I'm going to take you to court. But that's billion, 27 billion with a B. To forgive such a debt is extravagance at a level that we have never witnessed in this world before. In another parable, God has described as a big-hearted vineyard owner who literally gave people far more Money for than their worth than their work was worth. They worked one hour and he paid them a whole day's wage. In another, he was the extravagant father who gave away half of his estate to a rebellious son, and then gave a feast when he came crawling back, having wasted it all. Extravagance and all of this is trying to describe the nature of God. Another parable sees him as a magnanimous nobleman who gave three months wages to all of his employees and then went on a foreign trip. And still another, he was a liberal landowner who literally gave his vineyard over to the tenants. And one parable, he's even described as a free-hearted king who gave wedding invitations to every undesirable person in the county. And they all showed up. Bring hither the halt, the withered, maimed, and the blind, that my feast can be full generosity at a level that most of us have never fathomed and we try to come to god god please can i can i please if i be good can i have one little blessing can you hear me today speaking of generosity there's an extravagance so great that it borders on wastefulness and jesus's miracles as well let me ask you a question. How many weddings do you know where 150 gallons of fine wine will be needed? Come on, help me out here. He took the three barrels and filled them with water, 150 gallons, 50 in each, and turned them into fine wine, so, so fine, that the governor of the feast said, hey, wait a minute, you're breaking protocol. Usually you bring your best stuff out in the bottles, at the beginning of the, the feast, oh, come on, some of you, you act like you've never been to a wedding before. Now, I'm only talking about what I have seen from personal observation at a distance when I have performed weddings, you know. But I hadn't been over there sampling the product, if you know what I mean. But you're pretending, I don't know what he's talking about, weddings, Why? I don't know what that's about. Let me tell you. They usually serve the best wine first and then they bring the stuff out in boxes after everybody's got a little happy. <laughs> Amen. You don't see the boxes. They, they get that from under the table. They're under the counter. Amen. Why 150 gallons of fine wine? And couldn't Christ, since he was able to miraculously multiply five loaves of bread and two fish to feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children? If he knew how much it took to feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children, and he's breaking bread and fishes, saying, this is going to be the last bite right here that anybody will be able to stuff into their mouth. They're going to be so full. And then he keeps on breaking. Why? Because I'm going to break so much. After everybody's eaten until they can not take another bite, they're going to go home with 12 baskets left over. In all of this, I see a God that is generous beyond our ability to comprehend his generosity. And if you can heal somebody with a word, why would you wait four days before raising him, putrid grave clothes and all, before a whole village? All you had to do is say a word, but no. God is so lavish and extraordinary in what he does and in the miraculous that he waits until the situation is impossible and shows up and then gives a miracle that blows everybody's mind. Yeah. Amen. Why walk on water when he could have taken a boat? Why calm a storm when he could have just waited until the next day to go sailing? Who produces a catch of one hundred and fifty three fish out of nowhere? Nearly causing the boat carrying his disciples to sink. And who does it twice? Caught anything? No, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. All the fish say, Sarah's that net, let's swim the other way. And he says, Cast your nets onto the right side of the boat, and those fish that were swimming the other direction? So where's those nets so we can go get in them now? I'm talking about a God that's lavish and generous. All in all of these miracles, we catch a glimpse of how extravagantly and generously God gives. We could go on. You don't actually need to look at just the creation or the miracles or even the parables of Jesus. The actual teachings of the Bibles of the Bible themselves, teachings of the Bible, tell us that God is generous in his giving to the point of unimaginable liberality. I could go through every book of the Old Testament and tell you where God gave. To hit just a few in Genesis, he gave Abraham and Sarah a son when they could not conceive. In Exodus, he gave Moses, a forgotten shepherd, the opportunity to fulfill his destiny to lead Israel out of Egypt. I could go on. Through the rest of the Pentateuch, we see the story unfold of how he gave Israel the promised land. He gave, in Judges, Hannah a son when she was barren, gave David in First and Second Samuel the right to enter the secret place, though he was not of the tribe of Levi. We could go on into the chronicles of the prophets and the kings. He gave Hezekiah 15 years added to his life when he was at death door, and again and again and again and again throughout the history of Israel, he delivered them from their enemies and delivered them again. And And deliver them again. And they'd mess up and go back into captivity and deliver them again. I'm talking about a God that is extravagant in his giving beyond our ability. To comprehend just how generous he is. (laughs) We study his most famous sermon. The Sermon on the Mount and it's chock full of invitations like ask, seek, knock. Trust that the father who clothes the flowers will give good things to his children and not give them snakes and stones and scorpions. We live in a broken world where we have been raised around people and even in a society where maybe our own hearts are two sizes, too small when it comes to giving. And we don't quite know how to relate to a God that gives with such extravagance. And when we have a need, we come to him, as I mentioned earlier, acting as though he's one of us with his arms folded and is going to evaluate our situation like the loan officer down at the bank. When you have applied for a loan, have you ever noticed that if you need money, they won't give it to you, but if you got it, they're willing to loan it. Anybody ever notice that? Amen. We can look at his teachings in Luke's gospel that assure us that while others we meet in this life might not be generous, it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. We could walk through his remarkable teachings in John's gospel on the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. And even when he was about to die, he is still giving, giving. He said to make the point clear, no man takes my life. I'm giving it, I'm laying it down. It's my decision, not yours. I could have called 10,000 angels. You're not taking my life. We could look at the Lord's Supper and reflect on the blood and the wine that speak of God's gift of Jesus' body. And I got so broken in the first service when I read this again. And gave his very life's blood. He said, "Here." Take and eat. This is not just bread. This is me. I'm giving myself. That's how generous I am. Take my blood and receive the life that is in it. I heard a story some years ago, a true story of a mother and her small child that were in an earthquake in Turkey. You may remember the tragic earthquake of a few years ago. Killed so many people. And they were in an apartment building and the, the building collapsed. And she and her little child were trapped there together in the rubble, could not get out, could barely move. And the, research, the rescue teams were coming and searching and they were trying to find survivors. And this little child, after, day, after a couple of days, was crying, Mommy, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, Mommy, I'm hungry. And she was bleeding. And she had tried to staunch the flow of the blood from her hand. And when her child began to cry she took her finger and put it into that child's mouth to give that child her life's blood. And when the rescuers found them the mother was dead she had If I remember the term correctly, is it exsanguinated? She had bled out. But the child was alive. And that's literally what God did for us. Here, take my body, take my blood. Wherever we look, the Bible is filled with God's extraordinary acts of generosity. And the teachings of his liberality literally cause our jaws to fall open. Given is the very nature of God, or as the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4 and 7, what do you or we have that God hasn't given you? Is there anything in your life that you have that, God did not give it to you. As I mentioned, from the very air you breathe. I'm not overcome because of my granddaughter. She's doing so much better. So much better. I walked into the room yesterday... And she was there, and her face was so pale. It was as white as the pillow that it was on. She's just been a little thing her whole life. And she was aware that I came in and said, Hey, Papa, real faint and weak. And stayed there a while. And then she suddenly, she just woke up and sat up in the bed. and She looked up and said, Papa, you're here. She didn't remember that I had come in earlier. So I'm not overcome because... Of what she's going through. The doctors say she's she's fine. It could have been a tragedy. But she's good. Amen. But I'm overcome by the fact. I woke up this morning. I had enough intelligence. To get ready. And come to the house of God. And. I could say something about that because smart people are going to be in the house of God. Oh, let me preach to you a while about that. I don't really have the time. i got to move on. But what do you have from the breath you breathe to the car you drive to the job you work on if there wasn't a God that was liberal? It belongs to him. And for all this, Christmas, the cross, and the resurrection are the most astonishing expressions of God's generosity to be found in the Bible. Notice that in each of these verses, it isn't salvation, it isn't blessings, healing, all of those things are important. Those are not the things that are the best gift. Listen to what the best gift is. It's Jesus. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Galatians 1, 3 through 4, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. 2 Corinthians 9:15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The greatest gift is not forgiveness or salvation, but the greatest gift is the present that God gave us called Jesus. Amen. Of course, all the other things are wonderful, but it's actually a matter of perspective, and here is why Paul ask what is one of the most important rhetorical questions in the Bible. You understand what a rhetorical question is. It's a question that you're not supposed to articulate an answer to. You ought to just know it. But many of us don't. And it's found in Romans 8 and 32. It says, for he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That if God would give you his son... That promotion, that job, that blessing, that healing that you need, that small stuff comparatively. Oh, somebody ought to praise him right now. I said, somebody ought to praise him right now. Somebody ought to praise him right now. The most costly and expensive gift was Jesus. If you gave up Jesus, Paul's rationale is, why would you ever think he wouldn't give us everything else? Why, in your mind, do you have to struggle to believe that God gives or that God loves after that, after giving up Jesus, your need for a miracle, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> One of the things that God that makes God who he is and that is that he is always giving because generosity is his divine nature. That's just one of the things that makes him who he is. You never hear of God taking. I strongly object. I've been in funerals before where I wanted to stand up and say, oh, oh well, wait a minute, that's not right. Stop right there and stop the pastor right in the middle of a eulogy. When he talks about God came and picked the most beautiful flower, stop that stuff. Don't you blame God for what the devil did. God never took anything. All he's ever done is give, open his mouth, and it comes pouring out, throwing out blessings with his hands. Everywhere you look, blessings, 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 blessings. Don't say God took your loved one, not so God gives, he doesn't take. On the other hand, one of the things that makes the enemy who he is, is that rather than giving, he has always been in the business of taking. It's the enemy that takes, not God. As heaven's worship leader, the one who from time immemorial and from eternity past had led the angels of heaven in their worship of God Jehovah, Satan tried to take the throne away and... Exalt himself above the Lord God Almighty. And he was cast out because from the beginning he's been a taker. You need to cast out of your life things that take from you. Oh. You've got situations going on, and all they're doing is taking, 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 taking. Do what God did. Let it go. Oh, man. Oh, somebody help me right now. It's the enemy who calls death, suffering, and disease to be a part of our experience on earth by stealing from us the relationship that mankind once enjoyed with God in creation. In Eden, there was no sickness. There was no cancer. There was no heart disease. There wasn't even the common cold or the flu or a headache to deal with in Eden. Aging did not occur, and there weren't any of the other agencies of death with which we are so, so familiar that are at work in us today. It is amazing to me to consider that in the garden there was no need for healing because Adam and Eve enjoyed divine health. But then the the enemy came and stole our health from us. If you lose a loved one, it isn't God who took him. It's the enemy. It's because of him that we must all experience death because he's a taker. And we'll take your health, your time, your marriage, your kids, your value, and uh, anything else that matters to you in your life, because that's what a thief does, he takes. And Jesus said regarding him in John ten ten, the thief. I need you to say that those words with me, the thief. Come on, say it louder, the thief. He's not your friend. What is he? He's the thief. Say it again. He's the, look at your neighbor and say, it's the thief. Does not come. Did you hear that? Except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. It's the very identity of the enemy. Jesus said he was a thief. When you see him show up, rest assured he's not hanging around just to talk to you about the weather. Amen. And I'll tell you something else. The thief does. He does not take what is of no value. You've ever had your home broken into, you know what I'm talking about. He doesn't go look in your kitchen, in the kitchen, you know, underneath the sink there for the wastebasket. And when you get home, who pulled out? Who took out the trash? Honey, did you take out the trash? It's gone. He doesn't come looking for garbage. He comes to take what matters to you. He comes to take what has value in your life. And if I can speak a word to you, there has been a time in my life when I was young and had not lived enough of life's experiences yet to know what really was valuable. But as I've gotten older, I found out some stuff this world offers is fool's gold. It shines and it glitters, but that's not what life is about. I don't want any iron pyrites. Give me the genuine stuff. Amen. And you know what? The enemy can take all the junk, but that's not what he's after. He's after what matters to you. And this is a word from God for somebody. If the enemy is after you, it's because he sees value in your life. He doesn't come looking for junk. He's a thief. Amen. He's a thief. If he's after your marriage, it's because he sees how powerful you and your spouse could be together. If he's after your finances, it's because he knows what you could do for the kingdom. And for others, if you succeed in getting that business of yours going that is struggling, he knows he's got to steal. And he's out to steal from every single one of us. That's his identity but God's identity is to give. I learned, I've learned something in life. I've learned, I used to think that when you give, that the person you give to will love you because you've given to them. Anybody ever think that way? Yeah, you, you find out what I found out? It's not, you don't give to somebody and they love you then. That's not the way this game works. The way it works is when you give, it causes you to love the one you're giving to. I'm talking to you right now. Amen. To some extent... In our Christian experience, when we got saved, yes, we love him because he gave. We love him because he first loved us. That's what the scripture says. But that is absolutely the lowest level of love that exists in the kingdom of God. There is a point in your life when all you're wanting, if what all you're wanting is God to give. I want you to understand that's not love. Because when you give to somebody, they don't love you back just because you gave. I I got a word for somebody that's burning in my spirit. Some of you tried to earn love. Some of you tried to buy it. You can't buy it. Can I hear somebody say amen? Amen. I talked to one of my ministry sons yesterday. And he brought up the fact that his wife has just had surgery about a month ago. She's been pretty much incapacitated for a month, and he was telling me that she's slowly improving. And then he said something, not even knowing what I was going to be preaching on today. Pastor Byron Murray, right here in our community, God is connected to him to me as a spiritual son. His mom and dad attend the 730 service, Chester and Janet Craft. About a month ago, as I said, his wife, Marcella, had surgery, and for the last month, he has been her primary caregiver. He's been going to the all-night pharmacy when she's hurting at 2.30 in the morning to get medication, taking care of her, helping her get dressed, doing the things around the house, helping her walk around, get from one chair to another. Today, by the way, is their 20th anniversary. And I was talking to him yesterday, and he shared something with me. He said something has happened to him since he has been serving her this last month. He calls me Dad. He said, Dad, I've always loved her. She's a great woman. But something has happened in me since I have begun to give and share and serve her. I'm loving her more than I ever have. And I said, Son, you don't even know what I'm preaching on tomorrow morning. Because it isn't giving that ties you to the person you're giving to. It's love. When you give, that's what ties you to the person you're giving to. Your love grows. What happens is that's the beginning of love. Giving is love. And that's why every time you see God He's giving, giving, giving. And then the scripture sums it all up in three words. God is... God is love. I close this morning by telling you that what I feel in my heart is that God aches for people to know how much he wants to bless us. He came to this earth daring to give, knowing his gift would be rejected. But he's so generous he gave anyway, and I told Byron yesterday, you know what's happening, Byron? I said, you're growing more the character of God in your heart now because you're becoming like him because that's what he does. The more he gives, the more attached to us he becomes. And if you want the character of God in your heart, you have to learn to be generous as well. You can't live the rest of your life with your heart too sizes, too small. Oh, come on, somebody. Hear what I'm talking about. Rather, it's giving to your, your own family, loving them, serving them, serving the downtrodden, the broken in our community. Giving. It's His divine nature. I pray as I close that you may be blessed to have eyes of Revelation that can hear and see what I'm talking about today. Because if you do, it will forever change the way you approach God. Some of you are sitting out there with needs that are overwhelming. And you're sweating it out, wondering, will God help me? And God says, just give me a chance and what's what happens when I open my mouth. <laughs> Blessings come flooding out. I want to speak a blessing over your life. Stand with me across the building. Would you come and join me right now? Because I want to pray over you as we end this year and begin to move into a new year. So generous, God. Just tell him you're so generous, God. So loving. Have you noticed that not one time in any of the stories that I told or the parables that I mentioned or the verses that I went to, have you noticed that not one time did God first check and see, are you worthy? deserve what I'm about to give I want you to put your hands over your heart and simply ask the Lord to do this put in me God divine nature help me to love the way you love to not fear approaching you help me to learn to give to be as extravagant as you are as reckless and as careless as you are loving people around me.